Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Alicia Gaines about her amazing book published by our friends at the University of North Carolina Press in 2017, entitled Black Fur Day, White Fantasies of Race and Empathy. And Dr. Gaines is an associate professor of English at the Florida State University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gaines. How are you doing today? I'm fine, and thank you so much for having me, Adam. Very good, very good. Well, before we begin, um, you know, getting uh, into the particular book, Black Fur Day, can you talk to us about what sparked your interest in such a topic? Yes. So um, I was, I had just finished my prelim exams at Duke University, working on my PhD, and I was trying to figure out my, what my dissertation project was going to be. And I saw a commercial for an FX cable show, a reality TV show called Black White. And I was fascinated. Um, So the premise of the show is that two families, one black, one white, kind of switch their races via Hollywood style makeup and prosthetics. Um, And they're supposed to kind of understand each other through walking in each other's skin um, and I was so blown away by A, just how, well, first of all, the makeup is very creepy, but B, um, like, how do we get to this moment? What is the genealogy that has cable executives say, oh, this would be a great idea in 2006. Um, let's have these families switch their races and then live together in a reality, um, kind of like real world style house. Um, I wanted to know uh, who had done this kind of racial project um, before um, the Wurgles and the Sparks did. And that led me back to John Howard Griffin's Black Like Me in 1961. And then with more research, Grace Spriggle and Grace Housel. Mm, yeah. And and I think it's so, so interesting. And I wrote this down last night when I was uh, putting together some notes. Um, 
It's so wild that, you know, the, yesterday, you know, the international day of telling, you know, typically white folks and I do uh, blackface, <laughs> aka Halloween, right. was like yesterday. And then also, um, I guess it would have been the end of the previous week or the beginning of uh, this week with the whole Megyn Kelly situation, where apparently, I guess, a, a 40 a forty plus year old woman apparently thought that blackface was a cool thing and an okay thing in her childhood, right? Yeah, you know, okay. Interesting. Um, and so I think we could see a bit of a genealogical connection to to the story that we have here to even literally pertinent events that are going on in the culture right now. Um, so huh, the providence is amazing. And this is another reason why <laughs> we are happy to have Dr. Alicia Gaines, a, a Tallahassee uh, a, a person right now. And I'm a fam, you guy. So it is it was just amazing. I knew I had to have you. Um, and so um, um, with that as well, um, so so can you talk to us about kind of how you uh, lay out your argument with this book and also kind of uh, uh, you, you, you spoke a bit about a couple of the of the of the folks and, and also the titles. Um, c- could you break that down for us a, a little bit more about the um, particular stories that you're um, uh, speaking about in, in Black Like Me or Black for a Day rather? Sure. Sure. So, um, so Black for a Day, really I'm thinking about a genealogy of what I call empathetic racial impersonation. So of course it's an, it's an offshoot of both passing and blackface minstrelsy, but really these are mostly white liberals who think that changing their skin is going to give them some some kind of insight um, into the black experience. So famously John Howard Griffin did did this project. He um, he took um, kind of anti-vitiligo medication, the same disease that Michael Jackson had mm-hmm. that depigmented his skin. Um, he took the the corrective to that, so actually it made it hyperpigmented. Um, and then he would um, tan himself in sun lamps and things like that, and then um, walk around to try to experience life as a black man uh, all throughout the South. Uh, before him, um, a journalist from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette named Ray Spriggle. He spent what he called four, you know, harrowing weeks um, uh, passing in reverse. And he um, he was unable to find something to darken his skin. He was trying to use topical creams and everything. He never got around to medications. But um, he just shaved his head, wore a shabby hat, and just Jim Crowed himself. So literally the line of segregation um, became how he delineated himself and marked himself as a black man traveling throughout the South, um, meeting various people, and then writing um, a series of uh, front page articles about what it means to be black in 1948, um, even though he'd only been black for, at the most, 30 days. Uh, Grace Housel, who was kind of a mentee of John Howard Griffin, she she dedicated um, herself to the project more than the two men who'd done it before her. Um, she wanted to experience black blackness as a woman. And so she com- took also medication. She went down um, to the tropics and um, kind of gave herself a beautiful suntan and then went to Harlem. Um, in Harlem, and this was in the, the, uh, the 60s, the late 60s, um, so the Black Power Movement is going on. And she finds that they're just, um, the black folks in Harlem were not authentically black enough for her. <laughs> she was wow. blacker than they were. Wow. Uh, and so she decides to go where 
um, you know, the font of authentic blackness really is the South. Um, <laughs> and goes to Mississippi, goes to Mississippi, um, and finds that, you know, she wants this black folk experience. Um, and she just comes up with these just very bizarre kind of assumptions of what it means to be a black woman. Um, and also what it means to be an ally in this moment. Like we don't, we don't need white folks to dress up as black people to, to start a conversation about race. Uh, and people made that very clear to her in the late sixties, but she basically ignored them, um, took it upon herself to do this project because she wanted some kind of transformative, um, experience. Uh, then we, then chapter four is on black white, the TV show I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Um, again, it's, it's, it's this, you know, strange, strange attempt in 2006, which is kind of astounding that we are going to have a, a, this quote, social experiment is going to change race relations in the United States. But really all it was, was two families who didn't get along um, <laughs> doing kind of mockeries of each other mm -hmm. um, in black and white face. And then, you know, just, it just kind of spins into nothing. Um, and then of course the epilogue with Rachel Dolezal, who I call the last soul sister. Um, <laughs> I laughed because, so hard when I would you, you characterize her as the last soul sister. I I literally was dying in the library. It was like ridiculous. Well, I, I appreciate the laugh. The la you know, I, I wanted I wanted someone to laugh at that because Grace House's book is called Soul Sister. And so it's it's a nod to her, but also it's everyone else in this project, um, they do it temporarily. Rachel Dolezal, um, and she's changed her name now um, to Inkechi, mm -hmm. I believe, Diallo. Um, so she's she's the one who just doggedly refuses to return to whiteness. Um, she is adamant that she is black, um, and that no matter the fact that she created this social media firestorm around. Her identity, um, she will hold on to that blackness for all, for whatever it's worth, as, and for as long as she can. Um, and I also didn't talk about um, the introduction to the book, which is it uh, sets up the project because um, when I was in ninth grade in my Northeast Ohio high school, I was in the Broadway, well, you know, Broadway musical. Finian's Rainbow, but our, our high school's version of that. And there's a blackface character in that um, musical. And I was one of the people actually helping to make to, to make him black off stage. Um, and right, it's a it's a wow kind of thing because what was anyone thinking? <laughs> and again, it's a it's a, it's an empathetic, supposedly an empathetic character. He is he's a racist man who a leprechaun, it's very convoluted but a leprechaun um wishes over a no i'm sorry um uh, over a leprechaun's pot of gold um, a woman makes a wish that she that he would understand what it's like to be black and that maybe that would somehow erase his racism um so he magically becomes black um and i helped him magically become black by you know smearing paint all over his face off stage um and then he you know experiences life as a black man goes goes around um and sings in this uh barbershop quartet and all of a sudden he's not racist anymore um 
And that was from, that was the post-war, uh, the original um, musical was from the 40s. Um, so it's definitely a post-war kind of um, project that, uh, that blackface or walking in someone else's skin or what I call empathetic racial impersonation would be this um, remedy to America's racial ills. And, and, and the way that you, um, use empathy is, is just so, it's just so apt. And I, and I think it's, it, it has really, uh, it can be transferred to so many other areas, I think too. Um, because when I think about how these are not white people with, with white hoods on their head looking like cone heads, right? These are the white liberals that Jordan Peele, you know, was talking about in, um, in, in get out or his, uh, or his, his, uh, the, the, the funny uh, key and Peele skit where he's being president Obama and going down the line, the, the handshake line, right. You know, that, that, that's, those are the kind of situations that I think of, or obviously the very, very funny, uh, Dave Chappelle, um, skits. From the early two thousands, which oh my gosh, what a great time to be alive! But um, but 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 yeah, so so I think that's the interesting part, right? You're talking about white liberals in this moment, right? You're talking about people who I want to feel the black experience. Now I've heard that for a long time. I'm I'm only I'm only twenty six, but I've heard that many different times. Or the common refrain: I am I listened to NWA and I am blacker than you like, like or, or or something like you know to that effect um in, including you know singular examples of, of blackness or you know uh, uh artistic you know uh, uh things of, of the black experience and it's like nah bro like you don't understand but the good thing but but the interesting thing that you do is you interrogate the people that you know did literally try to understand by effectively deforming themselves um and so what were the experiences like of many of these folks when when they were when they were traversing racial lines in in the in the dangerous Jim Crow times and obviously Jim Crow is very very dangerous definitely not satirizing that but satirizing them trying to include themselves in that right what what were their experiences like so it 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 differs with each kind of impersonator um or actor or whatever you want to say um and, and right how do you characterize yeah, them, i right? kind of think of them as as impersonators um okay and so or even performers um because they really are mm-hmm. often performing their own version and their own interpretation of what it is like is, is to be black none of them um ever seek out black folks to get kind of um to, to understand what's like um they kind of have their own ideas so the the experiences differ ray spriggle he's in the 40s um he actually is traveling with john wesley dobbs um who's civil rights mm-hmm. um, leader of atlanta and so he he's traveling with him um and he doesn't really experience anything even though he's jim crowed himself throughout the deep south um and um, he he really he actually laments the fact that he doesn't experience any kind of racial terror. Um, 
he said, gosh, this would be a much better story if something had happened to me, if I failed to um, serve someone. But at the same time, he performs what I call good niggerhood because he won't, he, he does not ever push any buttons. He doesn't, he doesn't try to um, uh, ruffle any feathers. He said he t- takes his hat off in front of white people and just, yes, sirs, yes, ma'am, all the time. He did try to um, um, go into a segregated um, waiting room at one point um, to see if anything would happen and nothing happened. But that was the only time that he kind of pushed any boundaries. Um, and so I really believe that um, because of the chaperoning he had throughout um, these spaces throughout the South, um, he was kind of sheltered from maybe what could have happened um, if he had been traveling alone. Um, uh, John Howard Griffin had a, had a very different experience. Uh, once again, it, it's a different time period, though. We're almost t- uh, 10 years later when he starts his project. And he is by himself. He doesn't, he doesn't really want many people to know what he's doing. Um, and once the articles start coming out in Sepia magazine, um, that's mm-hmm. when he starts um, getting some some um, blowback. Um, he is hanged in effigy in his hometown of Mansfield, Texas, where he literally has to take his family and go to Mexico and and hide for a while because things just got a little too hot. Um, white folks did not appreciate the sort of um, conclusions he was making about about blackness, even though this was happening in a black periodical. Um, then Black Like Me comes out in 1961, and then a very, very bad movie version of that comes out in 1964. Um, and he, he articulates about getting the hate stare and um, that he can't get any work. So he actually experiences some of the um, consequences of being black while in the South, um, although he the kind of conclusions he makes about his temporary time as a black person and what black folks go through on a daily day basis when you don't have the refuge of whiteness to return to. Um, that's the real, that's the real problem with, with these projects. Um, there's always um, whiteness just waiting when you get a little bit too sick of being black, which is what exactly what happens to Grace Housel. So Grace, you know, I told you she goes to Harlem Harlem, those black folks are just not black enough for her. She's blacker than them. She said they're trying to be like whitey. Um, Goes Mm -hmm. goes down to Mississippi, starts doing um, day work as many um, black women did um, in the late 60s in Mississippi. So she is doing uh, domestic work and she sets up in the book that she's so terrified that a black man is going to rape her. Um, she repeats it over and over again, especially when she was in Harlem. Well, of course, the twist in the book then, and you know, it's it's a it's almost a little too neat to to be um, maybe factual. I'll say that I have my skepticism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the the twist in the book is, you know, she's doing the domestic work in this um, white man's home. He comes home unexpectedly and tries to rape her. It is in that moment, um, and she she escapes from him, um, runs out of the house, and basically said, well, I'm done. Like, <laughs> I'm done being a Black woman. That was a lot. Um, and she transitions um, back into whiteness and back into her white womanhood because um, it was always, you know, there waiting for her. Um, 
and the Sparks and the Wurgles, uh, the, the the two families in black white, their experiences it, are kind of almost comical because um, the white guy Bruno, who kind of uh, is moving through sp- sp- various spaces in Los Angeles as a black man, he refuses to see um, racism. He just literally can't see it. He, he said, I wish something would happen. Things are happening. Like women are clutching their purses and things like that, but they're the kind of microaggressions that he can't see. He wants someone to jump into his face and call him a nigger. Um, and that's, and he says it a bunch of times. <laughs> and he's like, that, like, that's the racism that he understands. Like if somewhere to, if the KKK were to come and um, on the, you know, the, the, whatever lawn, um, that they've rented for the for this family to stay in. If they were to erect a, a cross and burn it, that's the racism he could racism he could see. He does not see when um, people are clutching their purses or moving over um, crossing the streets. So they don't have to walk directly next to them or jumping off the sidewalk into the streets. So they're not touching them. Um, he can't see any of that. He just thinks that's just a pro- regular social behavior. Um, he doesn't see when they're followed into the store or followed around the store when they're in the mall, um, or the fact that um, when he encounters, he tries, he goes to a car dealership and the the person immediately says, so what did we do to get your business? And it's a little, you know, for those of us who have, who have lived <laughs> blackness for a long mm-hmm. time, you immediately pick up on, mm, that's a question you would not ask that other person over there. Um, but the, he said, oh, well, he was just so prompt and so, so eager to talk to us. No, he's surveilling you and he wants to know why you're here. Um, and he wants to know if you can afford the cars that you're looking at. But he gets none of that. It goes completely over his head. Even though there's a black family trying to point these things out as they're happening, um, he, he refuses. The only time he sees racism is when he um, feels some hostility um, towards from other black people. Um, that's when he says, oh, yeah, I, I, I feel racism here because I'm in a I'm in a black neighborhood and I don't feel all that comfortable. Um, so those are the kinds of experiences, <laughs> right, that they're that these um, impersonators, if you will, are having. Yeah, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, diet racism is, you know, the, you know, the main the, the, the main dish that they are devouring here. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's funny because to me, when I think about, you know, a, a lot of the stories that you talk about and, and then, you know, the Black Like Me uh, 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 film that came out, I saw some of the pictures uh, in, in, in the book and I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, they didn't good, even, good cha- God they didn't even change his like, like, it, You didn't even try. <laughs> they didn't even like, try. I was going to say, you didn't even, like, like, that's the thing. It's like, that's how you know they were not like they were serious about making the film, but they were not serious about like, all right. Okay. If, if we want to put to the side, blackface is just like outright wrong. All right, right. We put that to the side. We, we, we said that, right. Mm-hmm. So we look at it about the film, right? Come on, man. Come This is how you know y'all, y'all ain't right. This is how y'all know y'all ain't right. But then also, this also brings me to the, to bring it to a more contemporary moment. When um it was a Zoe Saldana played oh. um Nina Simone and oh. the whole world tried to tell her like no mm-mm, no not only is it because there have been okay we can say that Malcolm X and Denzel Washington skin tone wise are not adjacent they're just not right but when you look the only thing that he changed was the hair and really that's about it 
Yeah. But you look at, you know, Zal Saldana, what did she do? A prosthetic nose? Oh, she darkened. did so many things. I mean, she darkened her skin. Zoe had a prosthetic nose. Um, I don't know what was up with her, that hair. Um, she she did so much that it became it became grotesque. It became cartoonish. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was not just if you have to do this many topical changes to your kind of body landscape to make yourself approximate sort of Nina Simone. Um, then let's have some conversations. And also her her doggedness in keeping that role when you know that you are just inappropriate for that role, especially when Nina Simone's body of work was so deeply connected to what she looked like, her brown skin and her thick lips and her nose. That was important to her um, her aesthetic and her politics. So for Zoe Zaldana to take that role and just let them do all the things that they did. Um, mm-hmm. It was, it was disrespectful to say the least. Yeah. And, and, and so like, I, I was trying to draw parallels um, to, to black like me and, you know, to these different, um, to these different stories. And, and, you know, you had mentioned before about these being performances. I was trying to think about like, how do you, like I was thinking about as I was reading, like as like a secondary piece, you know, how do you articulate what these people are doing? But then also, what are the audiences that are taking in this, do you call it art? You know, are, are they, you know, how are the audiences, you know, taking, specifically, I would guess, white audiences, but, you know, also how Black audiences take to these particular performances once they are um, uh, put out to the world? Um, because obviously they're, you know, they're portraying these roles and then there's no point in portraying it if you're not going to then, um, you know, write about it and interpret it out to the world. So how did, how did that take? Right. Good question. So Spriggle, um, the guy who did it in the forties, he was the journalist. He really wanted mm-hmm. a, a, a second Pulitzer prize. Um, and uh, he thought that this would be a good way to get it, to, to do that. Um, so audiences, his, his newspaper, um, Articles did did okay. They, they did well, but they did not garner him the Pulitzer Prize nomination that he wanted um, because it's a bit, you know, it, it's a stunt. Um, it's it's not deep investigative journalism. Um, and he wrote a, he wrote a subsequent follow up book um, to to the to the articles, and it's it did like miserable. It was just it sold not very well at all. Um, John Howard Griffin, totally different story. So Black Like Me is sort of the, the urtext for these, for these things. It's the one that people know the most whenever I say what my project was or my research. Um, they're like, oh, like John Howard Griffin, that guy. Um, yeah. Um, so that, and that's why it became, you know, it went from, from um, a, a memoir to, to the screen. Um, it was a bestseller. It remains on... Um, high school and middle school reading lists across, across the country. Um, so particularly um, it, it hit a cultural nerve um, in the late fifties, early sixties. Um, and it definitely it was for white folks to read. Uh, what's, what's striking is just today um, I saw kind of what some kind of meme about, you know, um, black men's health this month. And on the reading list of all this stuff about black masculinity, was John Howard Griffin's Black Like Me. This is Get today. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah, dude. 
Um, so uh, on this list of people like Ta-Nehisi Coates and Pierre Le- Lehman is Griffin, um, which was I I, I, I was. Tra- oh my gosh! I wonder I, how I would tra- feel about being on that on that kind of list, like like right. Ugh. So I was trying to figure out like the source, you know, of of mm-hmm. who created this list about black masculinity and put John R. Griffin on it, but I couldn't figure out what the um, who the person was or the organization was that was doing this, but it was something circulating on social media, um, all day this morning. And so that, so, I mean, he's still, for whatever reason, still resonates, um, with people. Um, I always do sm- short polls in my classes, who's ever heard or read this book. And still I'm getting hands that go up. Oh yeah. I read that in high school. I read that in middle school. Um, That's now so inappropriate. It's so deeply inappropriate. How about you read something written by a black person? How about we just right. retire? But but there's something which is which is kind of my curiosity about it. There's something compelling that that about these projects that even you know the, to come again to them in 2006. Um, there's something deeply compelling about oh, can I experience the other? But kind of flirt with it um, in a in a casually dangerous way um, because I know that a I can get a book out of it or TV show, or, and, and B, I don't have to be this permanently. It's always temporary. Um, even when Rachel Dolezal says that it's she's never going back, she still has the option to go back. And that's what makes it completely different from everyone else um, identif- who, who identifies as Black. Um, uh, as far as Grace Housel's reception, very different because it was a Black power movement, like I said. People were literally writing to Ebony saying, um, she had a big spread to to um, promote the book in Ebony of all places. Um, I, I was just, and, I was like, wow. Yeah, six page spread, and she, she people are saying writing letters to the editor like, what is this? Like, we don't need you. Thank you. We've got it from here. Um, uh, please, no one, no one asked you to do this. Even in the book, um, she talks about someone who critiques her, saying like, why are you here in Harlem? You, this is. You, you liberals love to do this. Just come and study us. Um, we're not your study subjects. Um, and she dismisses all of those critiques and insists on doing it anyway. And, you know, she, she um, Grace Housel, doesn't just become Black. She, when she's done with Blackness, she um, becomes Native. And she's done with that and writes that book. Um, she tries to pass as an undocumented Mexican migrant worker. Um, which is fascinating because how do you fake not being a citizen? Um, and she's crossing. <laughs> she's crossing. It, oh, she, in this moment. Oh my God. Absolutely. Citizenship. Absolutely. Good God almighty. Yeah. Um, wow. So she, and she's really, um, really trying to find herself through this kind of exploitation of otherness. And she does it um, multiple times. Um, but is lost kind of to the annals of history because no one really remembers her for doing it. And, and, you know, this is the interesting part. And I, I didn't know if I was going to ask you this, but your, your, your last couple of minutes made me think about it. So as you're writing this book, how, what is the time frame in which you're writing it specifically? Because I only ask that because um, when I think about the fact that the Rachel Dolezal bit is your epilogue, um, as far as like your writing process, how did you go? Like, like what was the time frame at which you were writing this? 
Um, because I think that that is a is, is like a fascinating thing that I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, I probably did most of the writing between 2012 um, and 2000 to 2016. It came out in 17. So um, right around there. Okay. And, and, and like I said, I asked that because I was thinking, you know, when, as you're talking out, I was thinking like, man, and, and, and I mentioned this to you um, offline, like, what the hell would this book be like if, if you wrote, if you, if you began it, shall you say in, in 2014? Um, and then, you know, now you are, you know, you complete the book in 18 and it comes out uh, uh, next year. Like I, I really wonder because um, you know, are, are, do you watch Insecure or have you, have you seen any of the episodes of, okay. So, so, you know, oh, okay. So I, I wanted to make sure. So, um, uh, 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 Issa's, um, coworker, um, the, 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 well, it's not really just her coworker, um, just her whole office, right. They are these white non, uh, white nonprofit working on behalf of quote unquote urban black children or black and brown kids. And, you know, kind of like this, uh, the, the, how they are portrayed is very much in line with, with what a lot of what you're talking about here, uh, uh, about this, uh, racial, uh, empathy. And though they're not putting on blackface, some of how they act is as if, you know, they're, you know, they're, it's really shenanigans, uh, b- portrayed as being, you know, down. Yeah, man. Dude, like I remember, like um, in the in the in the you know when when crunk music and everything was was really hot in Atlanta and throughout the the country in the early two thousand early mid two thousands, I'd be out with friends and um, you know we'd have these white folks you know be like yeah can you teach me how to Dougie man and I'm like make up the devil about my face bro like no hell no man because you know they're they're trying to it's you know it's jingoism man and so. You know, hey, if if I want to dance, I'm a I'm a, I'm a do to dance because I, I feel like it, not because you are the 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 puppeteer putting your hand up in my body and making me move. Nah, man, we ain't mm-hmm. doing that, right? So so mm-hmm. so, you know, your book brought back so many so many memories, and many of them being in Tallahassee, right? Um, huh. and so. Whew, yeah, there, there's a whole, there's a whole bit. Even um, I'm a big country music fan, and so I was at a concert um, at the um, at uh, the I forget the museum that's out in the sticks, but um, and so you know we had a, a country artist, uh, Luke Bryan, come, and I remember we were you know we were out you know doing our legally appropriate thing, um, and um, I had this woman from uh, Florida State, a white woman, be like, "Oh my gosh, you would fit in so great at Florida State." I was like, what? What does that mean? Like, 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 I'm not gonna lie. I was drunk, but then I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I sobered up real quick. I was like, nah, man. Like, like, I don't know. Like, like, don't get it twisted. Like, I don't know who you think you're like. Yeah. So it was just one of those like really, you know, really. and, And to a certain degree, a lot of this racism is sobering, right? It will sober you up in a state of, you know, hysteria and, and not in a, not in a situation that you would choose. Um, and so that's why I think this book is so powerful and so important, um, because for so many people, I think that it's, it, it, it's the blackface, God knows, I hope isn't reminiscent of, of real life, but what it does do, it provides, um, a, 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 a con- more of a contemporary 
uh, modern genealogy for this that obviously connects back to Jim Crow minstrelsy in the 1820s and 1830s. But, you know, it's very reminiscent of our time today and why we should not be surprised that somebody like Megyn Kelly would say that, uh, what she said in 2018. Right. And I... I I really do think that when you, th- the, the, the fact that this is done by like well-intentioned people, um, supposedly, uh, really, really helps get at the kind of the lie of, of white liberals, um, who are the ones who are supposed to be, quote, allies and are often doing um, a, a lot of the damage to folks of color. Um, for because they're not listening, because they're assuming, because they're they they want to be down, <laughs> like you said, um, and so it, to do that, they're you know taking all bits of types of cultural appropriation, um, wanting wanting us to be um, their friends to make them look cool, um, um, so or they can have some kind of purchase in in different spaces. Um, that's kind of the insidiousness of it. I, I'm 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 so tired of allies. I'm. I'm, I don't need any more allies. I need co-conspirators at this point um, because we are at a point where um, just being empathetic is not enough. Um, that is clear from the kind of sociopolitical moment that we're in right now. Um, and so we need white folks who are willing to not just be empathetic, but be um, empathetic plus something else. And I think that something else is to take some risks um, and to, to not just wear a safety pin and a pussy hat and s- say that their work is done. Um, mm. And so, so that really brings up another element of your book, and that's really it's it's a it's a social justice um, uh, uh, a book as well to a certain degree because you're showing you're articulating that these are not the these are not Bull Connor's cousins that are doing this, right? These are the the supposed people that are adversarial to they are the people that um uh during that famous 1966 interview with stokely carmichael when he was uh, the head of snick with uh, mike wallace and he asked well what about the, the the white people for the cause right what what about how do you feel about them and and stokely carmichael says you know if they're for the project of black freedom then they should be able to go on the ride that black people take them on Right. So if you really are, are about helping, right, not allying, but, you know, actually being co-conspirators in the cause, then, you know, you're going to have to take a backseat to what black people want. And, you know, white, you know, and, and that's why I think, you know, when you I, one of the, part, the parts I loved about your book was that it was I, I just loved how it was written. Like it, it was so amazing. And so there was a particular part with um, uh, with there are a couple of bits. Uh, in your lat in the quote unquote last soul sister chapter um one of them a lot of them being on page 169 and one of them being you know similar to uh and i quote similar to uh hustle um dolezal is a failed white ally using overdetermined black experiences to overshadow structural inequality end quote and then another bit a little bit further down um in 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 uh what dolezal says um, in yet another interview, she claims, and I quote, sometimes how we feel is more powerful than how we're born, end quote. And then you say, Dolezal's self-definition of blackness is the epitome of white privilege. And I was like, yeah, you doggone right. You doggone right. 
Yeah, she goes on to say at, one, at some point, I think it was after the book came out, she said, well, I have the right to self-identify. I was like, do you, girl? Do you have the right to self-identify? Well, that is very white of you. Like, it's very, very white. Um, because that is not the case for many people. Um, it, it was just so, it was just so dripping in privilege. Um, and she can't see the irony of that at all, of her saying that. Just completely blind, willfully blind to it. And I, and you know, I, and I hope that this is not an inappropriate comparison, but um, when I thought about, you know, in the moment that Rachel Dolezal is happening, um, you know, you also have um, uh, Caitlyn Jenner uh, publicly, um, uh, you know, be publicly uh, proclaiming that she's a, a trans woman. Um, and this is happening, I believe, in the same summer. It, it, and it was. so, you know, 2015. And, and so, so. Right, right, in 2015. So, you know, and then you transfer that to, you know, you, you, you hear, and, and I remember seeing all the memes saying that, and you speak about this in the book, which goes to the importance of, of, of social media in, in books now. Um, the memes that showed, you know, well, if you're okay with one, then why not the other? If you're mm-hmm. okay with Caitlyn Jenner um, being Caitlyn Jenner, not Bruce anymore, then, you know, what about, you know, Miss Transracial over here, right? You know, and so so the conflation, and then you bring it to now when you have people um, at the same time as the Brett Kavanaugh situation happening um, with the Supreme Court um, and, and the, the rape allegations, then you also have someone like Bill Cosby going to jail um, as well. And then you had people conflating the two, right? And so, you know, they're really, you know, obviously it's not racial empathy, of course, but, you know, these these moments of conflation happening in the culture in the, in the world at the same time. And, and so I think that, you know, it's a really, it's a very odd uh, thing. They're, they're very odd because they're not happening isolated from things that are to some antagonistic towards it. Right. I mean, so Rachel Dolezal definitely is not happening in isolation. And that's what I think gave her her 15 minutes of fame. Um I think people trying to understand um, um, Caitlyn Jenner coming out, um, kind of like it collapsed upon the Rachel story, even though those are two separate and distinct things. Um, it got kind of jumbled up. And um, like you said, the memes that, or if you can accept one, you can do um, not um, being able to have um, really substantive conversations around the fact that, Caitlyn as trans and Rachel as a white woman um, with a curly wig on are two very different things. Um, and we, we can't conflate one with the other. Um, and then also to sort of uh, very strangely um, um, want to, I don't know what it is, protect the legacy of Bill Cosby um, mm-hmm. uh, by, by pseudo defending Brett Kavanaugh. It's like, what, what we can, we can, <laughs> these are two different, Bill Cosby is not Cliff Huxtable. Um, and we can, we can separate those things and hold Bill Cosby accountable. I know that he was everyone's favorite dad, but he did unspeakable things to countless women. Um, and no matter how many pudding pots he sold, he needs to be held accountable for that. Um, Brett Kavanaugh should not be on the Supreme court. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, Bill Cosby shouldn't be in jail. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, going back to the, to the Cliff Huxable versus Bill Cosby bit, you know, I just remember thinking like once, you know, the, the women um, 
were uh you know the the many the dozens and dozens of women um ironically ironically another comedian got another black comedian to go underneath in in this case with uh Hannibal Burris but um thinking about how when you know believing people right you know and and believing their stories and and also thinking about how Heathcliff Huxtable was a OBGYN doctor right and so like that's the part that to me was the most like not the not the most of course but that was uh one of the more grotesque bits of it too right of how you perform you're right you're performing a task right you're performing a, a particular job a career bit on a television show that brings you into like you know, uh, the mainstream, shall we say, where even some white folks are really, you know, adopting this black family, a particularly molded black family, of course. And then you see all these things happening. And then, you know, these, some of the, a lot of these different stories are happening within the time frame of the Cosby show, which runs for quite a long time, especially even when you add on the, the spinoff um, uh, after the actual Cosby show ends. And then you also have the different worlds too. So all in all, like when you talk about these performances and these different bits, yeah, you know, you know, some people may say, oh, we're complex beings. Being complex and being a rapist ain't the same thing, bro. Absolutely like, like let, let's just stop Absolutely that. Not. Like, let, let's just, let's just cut that real quick. And so, um, oh man, th- 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 this one, this one interesting. I wouldn't say it went dark, but it went, it went somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, Dad, damn it, Cosby. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, you know, I've really, really, oh my gosh, it's 44 minutes gone. Um, you know, your, your book, uh, Dr. Gaines is, is really one that I think a lot of people should, uh, uh, really read. And, and I really think that, um, for one, after this interview, oh, and before I get any, any further, shout out to Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, because I found out about your book through your interview on Left of Black, um, oh, in yeah. his previous season. And so, um, I was like, Florida State? Local? She went to Duke? Oh my gosh, we got to get her on for this book. Yeah, definitely shout out to Mark Anthony Neal. He's been a, a, a great mentor throughout my whole career. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, shout out him and shout out, you know, all, all the folks down there at, uh, at Florida State and at uh, the Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University, October 3rd, 1887. What? And so, you know, that's the it just really rolled off the tongue. It's it's a wild that way. Um, and so before before we um let you go, Dr. Gans, can you tell us um anything else that you're working on that we can anticipate to bring you back on for another uh, amazing conversation? Yeah. So um the the next project I'm working on um tentatively called Playing a Slave, um, but actually I'm going to be so the Rachel Dolezal thing happened epilogue happened because. Um, the reader report, the readers had my book and it was happening while they were reading it. So they, you have to have a Rachel Dolezal epilogue, but it was not the original mm-hmm. epilogue I had to the book. The original one was about my time when I went to a place called Connor Prairie um, Interactive History Park in Fishers, Indiana. And for 90 minutes, you got to play a fugitive slave. No. Um, oh, yes. God. I know for 20 bucks. I paid, I did it twice. I paid $40 altogether. Um, so you, um, you kind of, they mimic the underground railroad. You get, you get sold. Um, 
um, on sort of a makeshift auction block. Um, they call you things like breeders and they call the men bucks. And it's just, it's very intense, this kind of immersive public history. And I'm interested again in empathy in this moment um, and what these kind of kind of educational programs are supposed to be teaching us. So I will be doing projects like Connor Prairie, dusting off that original epilogue um, around the country and a couple of international sites as well um, to think about why I talked about sort of um, these kind of empathetic racial impersonators um, in the first book. The second book is going to think about sort of what happens when we do it in kind of a um, living history kind of a way. Um, what do, what are we supposed to learn? What do we learn? Um, especially when these are geared to like, you know, middle school and high schoolers often these really um, very complicated um, narratives around slavery. Um, why, why do we have to learn that by immersing ourselves in tragedy and trauma? Um, and so I'm really thinking about how we learn what we learn around race, racism, and empathy in this next project. Good grief. Oh my gosh. Like, I, like I, when, you, when you say like playing a buck, I can only imagine like a little 12 year old being like, mommy, I, I'm playing a buck. And I'm like, yeah. yo, what are you like? Like what? Yeah, like, it's, huh? it's, it's wild because the the kind of reactions to this go from like nervous laughter, outright laughter to kids crying. Um, guy, a guy got in a kid's face and was yelling at him and he just broke down and started crying. Um, so it's pretty intense. It, 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 you know, and it does sound like that. And, and I've heard of many different stories um, as a as a public historian who's been in these you know, random places in, in, in America and, you know, the knowledge that people bring and the places that they go to for this, it's like, you know, it's like an exhibition, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's really one of those situations where I'm just thinking like, for one, how the hell did you, how, like, why, like, why do you think that? For one, And then two, right. um, really thinking about how um, the performance, right. Playing a slave. Like, and you hear these stories of, of, of teachers, there's this Montessori school, um, I guess last year, or the year before that, you know, you know, it was playing on that kind of bit too. Like let's, you know, and there's only like one or two black kids in the, in the class. So you obviously know who's going to be playing the slave in this case. So, you know, it's just like, and, and then it even goes to like, you know, you're talking about racial empathy and how black kids, um, when the sort of slavery in class, you know, especially when there are, you know, there's limited black air to breathe in these spaces. So mm-hmm. only a couple are, are allowed in. And so um, what happened like that, the, another meme, you know, life is very memeable and I, and I love, thank God for memes where, you know, you're, you have that situation where like you see the whole row of white kids turned around looking at you with a smile on their face. Like it's time to talk about the slavery. Let's do it. And it's yeah. like, yo, like, 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 for one, why this on me? Y'all were the ones, y'all, y'all family members are the ones that did it. I, I ain't the one. Y'all should and be also, the one. And also, I wasn't one. a slave, right? Like, right. That's right. So like, I was not. Those, that, that's so strange about those moments. I had a moment like that in seventh grade, um, where my history teacher literally turned off Roots after we put it on for fifteen minutes, and he only did that because it was the last day of Black History Month, and I finally said, "Are you going to acknowledge Black History Month?" I was the only black kid in the class. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, I was waiting for you to mention to bring it up. I wanted you to bring it up. What? 
I'm 12 <laughs> um, or 13. And then he, he puts on Roots, puts it, lets it play for about 15 minutes, stops it. And he said, you know what? On the other hand, how about we let Alicia talk about slavery? And the entire class turned around and stared at me. And it's just, what? what? Well, I'm here to learn too. I wasn't a slave. Like, <laughs> what? Um, the, the sort of knowledge that some white folks assume that we have is, a, is and then we are then um, supposed to impart them for their benefit and at their and at their demand is quite um, astounding. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Astounding. We'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> there are many <laughs> different ways to describe it. And so many. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll keep it. You know. Uh, uh, you know. There, there, there might be people that are sixteen and seventeen listening. We don't want to corrupt their ears any more than we have with this with this True. blackface. Uh, a shindig that you know they keep, these folks keep doing man oh god oh god <laughs> but you know what you know this this part here is another part that you spoke about in your epilogue um as well and how even you know i guess between the rachel dolezal situation and the and the and the murders in um in charleston there's this time frame where black folks specifically online Right. You saw this a bit, obviously, through through news, but specifically through Twitter and online forums that black folks had a space in that particular time frame between um, the Dolezal situation and, Dylan, and, and and the Charleston situation of black folks just just taking time out just to laugh. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that was another part that I enjoyed that I didn't get a, a, to speak about as much, but that was a part that I did value because it, what it did, it brought me back to those memes and, and, and to the different gifts and, you know, um, ask Rachel, you know, it, you know, like uh, different song lyrics, like from earth, wind and fire, or, you know, it, from little boost, like Nuck if you what, like, like what's the lyric that comes <laughs> right. after that. Right. I come up I come to club shaking my what, throwing his what, and busting his what, right? Like these different bits that I haven't really used. I, like I've never used Nuck If You Buck in this kind of way, right? Come to the club, shaking my dress, throwing his balls and busting his heads, right? You, you and I have blocks. Like we can actually do this. Like, but the thing is, right, this is in, like this is a part of us, right? It doesn't need mm-hmm. to be performed because it's like internal to us because of our experiences. But also black folks having like, like Eddie Murphy did in the eighties with this as well. Um, as you characterize black folks have the chance to just laugh at the ridiculousness of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And we are the curators of that intellectual space of laughter. And, and that's important. And I think that's very important too. And I really appreciated you for bringing that to the, to, to the fore as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that was a rough summer, and it's been a f- series of rough summers in the Black Lives Matter movement, and sometimes there's some catharsis in just laughing, I was going to say with, no, we were laughing at her, laughing at <laughs> oh, yeah, um, definitely. sort of Rachel's brazen blackness. Um, it was nice to have that kind of, uh, you know, kind of cookout moment and just mm-hmm. have some catharsis. And we, and we definitely and we definitely uh, need that. And thank God it's November because we have uh, 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 
Shirley Caesar and and her two years long. I got beans, greens, tomatoes, you know, and <laughs> you know, we, we got it's November first, so we can we can you know we can dust that off and bring that we yeah, can bring that yeah. uh, clip back. Um, we can bring back the hashtag uh, um, uh, Black Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, Black yes. at, at, at Black Thanksgiving, you know, uh, hashtag and oh god, th- those those are just those are what. I see as like when people try to down social media and down Twitter, I'm like, there's bad things everywhere. And so I'm this, this is a good part about Twitter and, you know, black Mm -hmm. Twitter and the black spaces that we carve out in, in these, in, in this white, um, in this white world, um, or this white, you know, it's partially a white world, of course, but, um, that's all, that's a whole nother book, but, um, (laughs) but nevertheless, you know, Dr. Gaines, I've appreciated, all 50 now five minutes exactly oh wow um, yeah it's gone by really quick oh my gosh but hey that's yeah. what happens when you're when you're amongst friends and you're having fun um it's true. and so once again folks we have had the honor of having associate professor of english at florida state university in tallahassee florida dr alicia Gaines, talking to her about her amazing book published by our friends at unc press entitled black for a day white fantasies of race and empathy and good God almighty. This has been an amazing conversation and we cannot wait for you to come back again. Okay, great. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. Very well. And once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil, a doctoral student at, at the university of Delaware in the department of history. And, uh, it's been a pleasure to have Dr. Gaines on the show. And until next time, folks, this is Adam McNeil. Once again, over and out. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.